Yeah, it's the way Gordon Mann's voice sounds on that clip just makes me want to do a second P101 on Muhlenberg because I heard so many multiple people mispronounce it yet again this weekend. I I don't understand what's so difficult. I think if you know that the the team's name is the Mules, then you ought to be able to understand that they're called Muhlenberg and not Mullenberg. Well, maybe people don't know that they're the Mules. I uh, I think it looks like Muhlenberg, even if you're trying to sound it out phonetically i don't know how you get mullenberg so i'm kind of with you there but um people don't know all that much about schools outside of their own conference i think i I actually think that's one reason why this site functions and serves a purpose and why this podcast will be one of the most enormously successful podcasts we've ever done not just because randolph make it one (laughs) one of the most successful podcasts in division three football history right here at least of 2018. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. It's the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, season 12 of a podcast, season 20 covering Division Three football, and uh, this is podcast number 225 where we had a first round of playoffs that we're going to talk about the addition here for November 19th. 2018 and uh, Keith begged for a quality first round of the playoffs and I don't know if we got an overall quality first round but I'm not sure if it matters because Keith certainly had something to enjoy out of it as his alma mater pulled off the upset of the bracket winning 23-20 at John Carroll and it is time to welcome in Keith McMillan. Yeah and I don't know if I begged but I do think this is the first time in the history of the podcast where even a completely objective co-host would lead with Randolph Macon. The Yellow Jackets upset of eighth ranked John Carroll was not only unexpected it came two weeks after they lost at home to Ferrum, which finished the season 5-5. Five and five. That is a pretty big turnaround. It became the biggest first-round upset since South Region 8-seed North Carolina Wesleyan upset top-seed Washington Jefferson in 2007, and instantly became a game one could point to to justify the AQ system. 8-2 and two Randolph-Macon has no shot to get in as an at-large. 8-2 and two automatic qualifier Randolph-Macon just beat on its home field a team that gave Mountain Union its toughest game of the season. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's why the games are played on the field and not played on paper. In a top 32 team scenario where you don't give out the 26 automatic bids, I think Randolph-Macon would have had a really hard time getting a bid. Not impossible, but it would have been a tough call to get them in at all. Yeah, but they earned their way to the second round, and so did St. Norbert, which uh, blew out number 12, Trine. And number 13, Delaware Valley lost a home game to Muhlenberg. So Randolph-Macon's wasn't the only upset of, of Saturday. And while I have to say it altered my Friday pod prediction that round one would stink, it was still a round of general dominance by the winning teams. The average margin of victory was nearly 34 points. St. John's won by 78, Mount Union by 60, UW-Whitewater by a mere 53. Only RMC and Muhlenberg won by less than 13 points or two scores, and only four games were decided by less than 21 or three. Round two looks much more competitive, and round three should be good too, although that Mountain Union-John Carroll rematch we anticipated now won't happen. But either 8-2 Randolph-Macon or Pool C, last team in the field, Muhlenberg, will be a national quarterfinalist. Yeah, the trying piece, man, I... I think we knew they had not played anybody and certainly had not played anybody with a strong defense. But I was not really sure that St. Norbert was going to be the team which was going to be able to capitalize on that. But indeed, the Green Knights shut down star running back Lamar Carswell, not allowing him to get to the edge where he's been his most effective. And they got him to fumble the ball away twice while picking off the trying quarterback three times. Now, I am deftly ignoring the rest of your comment there because I am not sure how to wedge 84 to 6 into a positive narrative. 
Last year's average margin of victory in the first round was 26 and a half, and it was 20 points in 2016. Before we move on, let's discuss why Randolph-Macon beat John Carroll. The Yellow Jackets are a run-heavy offense built to be physical and control clock, and they did that for more than 44 minutes against JCU. Quarterback Anthony Meglin, who took the Blue Streaks to the national semifinals as a freshman, but is still a streaky player as a junior, threw four interceptions. He got benched and reinserted when senior Riley Larkin wasn't much better. Blue Streak star running back Michael Canganelli pulled his hamstring in the first half, and three key John Carroll defenders, defensive lineman Ray Brown, linebacker Jerome Bundridge, and cornerback Ariel Jimenez were out. But basically, it was the exact type of game Randolph-Macon is built to win. They have a senior quarterback, a three-year starter at running back, and basically one other player who touches the ball on offense. The team they were facing didn't use its speed to get down the field or threaten the defense, and the Randolph-Macon defense generated turnovers. Uh, I brought a clip. Here's Matthew Vergara's pick six. Two-minute offense for John Carroll. Meglin back to pass. He was pressured. Oh, man. And oh, my Lord. Oh, jeez. Wow, Meglin is going to beat himself up on that one. And that was intercepted by defensive end Matt Vergara. And I don't even know what happened there. Call it a miscommunication. But I don't know. Wow, Vergara just came up with that ball. And that's going to be a pick six interception for the Yellow Jackets. Call it a miscommunication? I just call it a bad pass right into the hands of a defensive end with nothing but daylight in front of him. That was a bit of a surprise to me, Keith, but even at his best, Meglin hasn't been great. He's, he's got experience, but without Canganelli, he clearly struggles. The Yellow Jackets tried to make it dicey at the end, too. It was a 16-6 game when they punted with 3.51 left, or they tried to punt. John Carroll blocked that, returned it for a touchdown. But Randolph-Macon hung on, and now they'll face Muhlenberg, which had an even more dramatic finish in a much milder upset. All six of our quick hits pickers, by the way, took the mules, but the D3Football.com top 25 poll had them 10 spots behind the Aggies. Yeah, and I was as I was reading that, I was thinking, I bet a good number of us, and I think five of the six are voters, uh, I bet a good number of us have also Delaware Valley ahead of Muhlenberg, but we all picked Muhlenberg to win. And uh, speaking of a more dramatic finish, here's Gordon Mann's call of the deciding moment of that game on the Delaware Valley video stream. Jordan. Looking again. Sideline picked off. Picked off. And going to the house. And going to the second round is Muhlenberg. 35 seconds to play. Darden picked off. And the Mules take the lead. 19 to 13. That was Nick Sirico with the pick, the fourth pick six of the season for the Mules, and the first fourth quarter pick six to win a game for the Mules since 1970. Muhlenberg folks had to dive through a lot of box scores to find that nugget for sure. And since it still seems to be needed, pronunciation 101. Bunavistic. Monon Belt. Bunavistic. Gallardi. German Ariel. Gabley. Muhlenberg. Yes, for goodness sake, people. That's how you pronounce Muhlenberg. People. Seriously. Anyway, big win for the Centennial Conference, which is one of three conferences with two teams remaining, along with the MIAC and the SAA, and no more than four conferences could have had two teams survive, of course, because of how the bracket was set up. Three of the five Pool C teams won on Saturday. We'll go bracket by bracket when we come back in just a moment. Keith and I will each have our game balls from Saturday's first round action in the 2018 Division Three playoffs. But before we get there, I'd like to take the time to mention that the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is currently available for sponsorship because you could be reaching an audience full of decision makers in Division Three football, coaches who need new equipment, who can influence decisions to replace turf, all the things that, you know, now we have 
what, uh, 234 coaches in their offseason. This is the thing that they do during the offseason. They spend their budget, right? They spend next year's budget. They plan next year's budget. You want to be in their budget. Keith and I would be waxing poetic about your product or service right here before we go to break. So think about it and drop me a line at pat.coleman at d3sports.com. It's time for game balls, and Keith, my game ball has to go to St. Norbert linebacker Matt Gargoni. People probably know the top-line info that he scored twice in the span of 19 seconds. I mentioned he's a linebacker, right? And this came at a time in which their game against Tryon was most definitely in doubt. St. Norbert had driven down and was held to a field goal early in the third quarter, with the kick giving the Green Knights a 17-7 lead. Trying cornerback Marcus Winter had made a great stop to force the St. Norbert ball carrier out of bounds at the two and force the field goal. And it's realistic to think that that could have given Trine a bit of momentum there in the third quarter. But instead, things fell apart pretty quickly thereafter. On the very next play from scrimmage, quarterback Brandon Winters threw a pass, which Gergoni intercepted, and he was Gergon. 26 yards to the end zone on a pick six, and it's 24-7 St. Norbert with 6-0-1 to go in the third quarter. The Trine offense comes back out after the kickoff, and Lamarck Harswell is fighting for extra yards and fumbles the ball. Gregoni is right there to collect it, and 35 yards later, he's in the end zone again. It's 34-7 with 5.42 to go in the third quarter, and the game is basically over at that point. And that's why that guy, Matt Gregoni, gets my game ball. Well, I think that was a pretty obvious and pretty good choice. Welcome back, Captain Obvious. For game ball, and there were some other good candidates, such as Mountain Union wide receiver Jad Ruth, who had six catches for 209 yards and four touchdowns against Denison, and cornerback Lewis Berry, who scored his fifth touchdown of the year, and basically the entire center, St. John's, and Whitewater rosters. But I award my game ball to the Mary Harden-Baylor defense, which came, came up huge in its playoff win against seventh-ranked Harden-Simmons. The Cowboys scored 522 points this season, or 58 per game in its nine wins. It scored six in two losses to UMHB. HSU averaged 582 yards per game against its nine non-UMHB opponents. It went for 222 in the first crew meeting in the regular season and 315 on Saturday combined. That's 547 or 45 yards fewer than its single game average. But most importantly, the crew on Saturday intercepted Ty Hooper four times, including one by Reggie Cole as the Cowboys were in the red zone, ready to score a tying touchdown. Cole returned that 88 yards for a score and an early 14-0 advantage. The one-time Harden-Simmons did score. Mary Harden-Baylor blocked the point after. So special teams can get in on this game ball if it wants, but mostly I'll give it to the Mary Harden-Baylor defense for another outstanding performance. Mary Harden-Baylor had allowed uh, 64 points all season coming into the game, basically right on line with that average on Saturday. Going bracket by bracket through the uh, top left bracket, we'll start, of course, and we have, uh, of course, that is where uh, Mary Harden-Baylor beat Harden-Simmons. It's where Barry beat Maryville, St. John's all over Martin Luther, and Whitworth over Claremont Mud Scripps as the four home teams advance. Keith, one of the big questions coming out of that game for Mary Harden-Baylor was about Jace Hammock's shoulder, and here's what Jace had to say in the post-game news conference. They were working on your shoulder for mm-hmm. the first half, then you go right back out and throw an interception. It didn't look like there was a lot on it. Was your, what was the status of the shoulder? Was it bothering you? Because then you came back with the long deep ball to Aaron. So what? Oh, oh, oh yeah. The there? <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Uh, it was just just a little little bang up, uh, but uh, bounced back, so we'll be good. 
This is where we get to talk about the most talked about backup quarterback in Division Three, right? Uh, Luke Porman, of course, is uh, out for the rest of the season. He had surgery on his foot or his ankle a couple of weeks ago. No longer available for uh, Mary Harden Baylor, and that makes the quarterback situation even a little more interesting. If uh, if Hammock is not a hundred percent throwing wise, well, it, Hammock's it's been his job most of the season. And um, it's now his job going forward without any confusion. And I think as a quarterback, unlike every other position where you, you generally can, can rotate in or move around to different spots during the game, your quarterback actually probably likes to um, not have to look over his shoulder, to stay in rhythm, to get to the point where Mary Harden Baylor, this, this, this point in the year, they're going to have to play, especially with the path they have to Shenandoah, they're going to have to play some, some tighter games where they're not winning. 84-7 and 91-7, and, and they're going to want to bring the backups in. There's going to be more games like this that are 27-6, and some of the scoring is a bit of a grind. They got Barry this week, potentially St. John's the week after, unless Whitworth pulls an upset, and then potentially you know Whitewater, Bethel, North Central the week after that. So the games are going to get tougher for Mary Harden-Baylor, and it's one less, one fewer thing for them to worry about now that they're, they're behind uh, Jace Hammock. Again, though, he, he said that shoulder's fine, but as you mentioned, if it's not, then that is one more thing to worry about. Final score of that game, 27-6. to six. Uh, Barry over Maryville by the score of 31 to nothing. Uh, this game was not really significantly different than the first time these teams met. Uh, Joey Connors with a uh, pair of touchdown runs and a touchdown catch and really kind of out of uh, out of hand there by about the uh, middle of the third quarter in the uh, post game news conference. One of the things that the guys wanted to talk about Connors, for example, along with head coach Tony Koncheski, talks about how uh, having Justice Edwards there at the game helped pump the Vikings up. Personally, when I I was getting pumped up just hearing about him coming, honestly, and mm-hmm. I love that man to death. I think we all do, and he's a big motivation for us. That was a big motivating factor last week. I mean, we talked about it going into the Trinity game of, you know, we can guarantee a home playoff game, you know, if we if we would finish the season 10-0. and 0. And, uh, you know, when we didn't get that done, I think there was obviously a lot of disappointment of losing a football game, but potentially losing a home game, which would potentially, you know, lose the ability to have Justice come back and, and see us. Um, you know, that man's been an inspiration. And from the time he was laying on the turf in Danville, Kentucky, um, you know, he has not wavered from his faith. Uh, he said he's going to be back when he's laying on the turf there. He continues to say he's going to be back, and I do not doubt uh, that guy one bit. And he's been an inspiration to us all season. Um, you know, we're, as we're doing the Viking walk, we're a little bit late today because he was late to the to the party. But we, I'm glad... I'm glad we met him about halfway through and, uh, you know, he got out of the car and, and uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of emotions that go through your mind uh, when you see that. And um, he's, he's a special, special man. For those who don't remember, and they reference it here in this clip, Justice Edwards, a defensive player, defensive end for Barry, uh, one of their best defensive players, and he was injured in the uh, early season game up at center, uh, carried off the, taken off the field on a, uh, on a stretcher, has been, uh, you know, underwent surgery, has been undergoing rehab in uh, his hometown and near his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama. So the team has really dedicated its season to him, and they've carried his number 14 at uh, you know at places, and here they've had uh, here they had an opportunity to see him right before the game. And I think for Barry, the chance to play at home was probably pretty special. There are certain 
things and moments in in anyone's football career, whether it's a player or a coach, that are um, are bigger bigger than wins and losses. And I imagine they're they're very connected to uh, to Justice Edwards through what happened to him, which is unfortunate, but it also becomes something that is sort of um, not a hallmark or a touchstone, but like a, a, a moment in your career where everybody suddenly either comes together or takes football more seriously or starts to um, put the game in, in perspective. And I think all that's special for Barry to, to have it, be able to have a home game because uh, this week is not going to be anything like round one was. Round one against Maryville, they held the Scots to 116 yards of total offense, 1.4 yards per carry. Get that experience in front of your home crowd, winning 31-0. And then next week you, you play one of the two best teams in the country in Mary Harden-Baylor, 1.4 yards per carry, very unlikely. But this is also what Barry has done now. As they've grown their program from scratch, they've gotten to the point where uh, in the playoffs last season they played at St. Thomas, and now they're going to play at Mary Harden-Baylor, so two of the great venues, two of the great programs in Division Three. And if Barry wants to get to that level, it's going to have to, to raise its level of play this week. Bottom half of this top left bracket, this uh, this pod of uh, St. John's and Martin Luther, Whitworth and Claremont Mud Scripps, uh, combined score of a lot to not very much, including uh, when St. John's scored 42 in the first quarter uh, and went on to win 84 to six. You know, St. John's. It, we talk about how there are you know big margins of victory in this round of 32 games. St. John's owned the previous record for most points scored and largest margin of victory in a Division Three playoff game, uh, beating Coe in a 16-team playoff by the score of 75 to two back in 1991. St. John's. You know, had 12 players carry the ball. I think, uh, although they, had, of course, only had 58 players dressed. I'm pretty sure that uh, if we kind of went through that list, I'm pretty sure not all 12 of those guys are running backs because I don't think you dress 12 running backs. Um, they did their best to keep this score down, but this is one of those, you know, 116 games, I guess, for lack of a better term in this playoff. Yeah, and St. John, 717, 717 yards total offense to 166 for Martin Luther. Uh, not not really close game in, in any sort of way, as you mentioned. You know the six touchdown passes by um, Jackson Erdman by halftime, forty two zero at the half. To some degree, you could almost describe this as a, a tune up or a scrimmage for teams like St. John's for for UW Whitewater and uh, and, and Mount Union in round one. But the games are going to get a little tougher, and for St. John's, I think. Now looking at a serious challenge this week when Whitworth comes to town. Whitworth advanced by defeating Claremont Mudscripts by the score of 48 to 6. It was kind of a slow start on the afternoon for the Pirates, and Leif Erickson tells us here about the adjustments that they made. I think, you know, we kind of shot ourselves in the foot. Uh, first quarter, we really shot ourselves in the foot, and we didn't come out and start like we, uh, like we normally do. Uh, and I think we just knew that we just needed to execute. That was kind of our talk. Uh, they they did a good job at shutting a couple things down that we worked on all week. Uh, they they had a good scheme coming in, and uh, we found a couple things uh, that we knew that we could uh, attack and exploit and uh, kind of came out in the second half and, and tried to exploit the things that we didn't expect to see, but that they showed us. Erickson, 27-42 for three touchdowns in that game on Saturday. Claremont Mudscript scored first in that one, too, so whether it was um, – Playoff jitters for Whitworth or uh, Claremont Mudscripts just had a good script opening up. It looked like it, it might be a close game for a while. And I thought the play that that sort of put this one away was uh, 
uh, Erickson touchdown pass to Mason Elms, 58 yarder mm-hmm. right before the half. I believe he hit him on a, on a wheel route. They scored with 12 seconds before the half. And so they go into the break um, 20 to six instead of 12, six. And, and that gave them a little bit of breathing room and they pulled away completely in the second half. And now I don't know whether, you know, just how intriguing this Whitworth St. John's game will be. And we'll discuss it more in the Friday podcast, but, we still don't really know how good Whitworth is because their big win this season was against Linfield, and we're not totally sure how good Linfield was this season. Yeah. And St. John's is a very good version of St. John's. I mean, maybe the best uh, Johnny's team since uh, the one that, that won the national championship in, in 03 and the one that won in 2000. So um, could be a good game next week. It could be a you know 54-13 or something. We just have no idea. I will be up there. I'll let you know. We'll let you know on uh, next Monday's podcast. That would be podcast number 227 for those of you who are keeping track. And I know we all reference them by the numbers. Uh, That'll be also a a team that I can check off the list. I have never seen Whitworth play football. Last thing on Claremont Mudscripts had neither Jake Norville nor Garrett Cheadle in the backfield. Uh, Norville's the quarterback. Cheadle's their top running back. Those are the guys that have helped them control the clock all season. And uh, I think one of the reasons why... Claremont uh, got off to that early lead is because they came out and did stuff completely unexpected. They threw the ball. They did play action. They, you know, the quarterback ran the ball, and that was uh, until Whitworth was able to adjust to that. Uh, that uh, allowed Claremont to get up a little bit uh, as uh, as they came right out of the gate. Moving on to the top right-hand portion of the bracket, uh, we saw Mount Union center Randolph-Macon and Muhlenberg advance. This is a place where two of the road teams moved on to the second round. But starting at the top of the bracket uh, with Mount Union defeating Denison by the score of 60 to nothing. Uh, Denison and uh, quarterback Kenan Gabley just basically could not get anything done. I know, Keith, you have uh, Gabley's uh, passing line pretty uh, quick at hand because you mentioned it earlier in our discussions, but uh, also a, a great defensive game once again, of course, for Lewis Berry and for the Purple Raiders. And uh, Jake Keeney getting the start at quarterback for Mount Union because of D'Angelo Fulford's injured injury. I just kind of teed you up on three things to talk about, pick one or all. I don't care. Yeah, I, I thought the quarterback uh, situation is by far the most interesting one out of Mount Union. Um, D'Angelo Fulford went out in the first quarter, I believe, of the Marietta game in week 11. They, I want to say like mm, ankle injury, something like that. Mount Union didn't publicly discuss the injury, and we should probably poke around between now and the Friday podcast to see if they think he's going to start in round two. But that was always the sense that uh, that I got that, that they didn't need to, to rush him back for this game because Mount Union has uh, such a smothering defense. And I think they probably helped to get a look at uh, at some of the other quarterbacks on the roster. So for uh, for Mount Union, you know, dy- dynamic set of passing targets, great running game, great offense, and smothering defense. They they could win a first round playoff game without forcing the their uh, you know Fulford to play, which last year in the first round they they did. Right. Of course, he wasn't hurt. That was a different situation. Uh, Keeney, uh, uh, 11 of 15 for 287. I don't know if I mentioned that, but basically a lot of that is uh, throwing the ball to Jared Ruth and Jared Ruth being all Jared Ruthy. I'm not sure that he threw, uh, you know, let's see, let's see, six catches for 209 yards. I know he did not throw three or six 30-yard passes to Jared Ruth. Well, and, and you mentioned that Kane and Gabley line. He was eight of 27 for 68 yards. Two interceptions. The Keeney line, eleven of fifteen, two eighty-seven, four touchdowns, no interceptions. So um, 
I think that's a big Mountain Union trait that they're always kind of grooming the next guy to step in. And uh, you know, we've we've gone out there plenty of times over the years, and and they they'll have a great starter unless they wait till you see the next starter yeah. coming through the pipeline. So uh, I didn't know because uh, Ernie Burks was the guy who came in in the Marietta game uh, for Fulford. I didn't even know who Jake Keeney was to be quite honest because I haven't followed Mountain Union very closely since about week four after the John Carroll game. Um, but yeah, between Jared Ruth and Justin Hill, those are two guys that are capable of of going off at uh, at any point in a game. They have two really strong outside receivers. They get a lot out of Cole Moxie and, and Luke Harrington, who's sort of their stand up tight end, in line tight end, and a guy they they are able to move around a little bit. So you get that that, and you have the same two running backs if you followed Mountain Union from afar or you maybe only tune in during the stag bowl of the playoffs you'll still recognize the names josh petroselli and juanza evans morris those guys are still part of the offense so really a dynamic offense and a, and a great defense and um their opponent in week two is going to be better than than denison i actually think based on how well they played in week one that center um could give a little bit of a challenge for mountain union i, I certainly don't think it'll it'll be a um close game in the fourth quarter but could get interesting for a little while well it will be interesting too for center because uh, tanner young their starting quarterback got hurt he left the game in the first half uh he was replaced fairly ably at least in a game against washington and jefferson we see how that translates against mountain union here uh, coming up in round two the big thing of course uh, the the name that keeps coming up for us as we're doing our research on uh, cornerbacks for all region and then for all American is the guy, the junior Cal Llewellyn for center. He's a guy who picked off seven passes as a freshman and then, you know, people stopped throwing in his direction. He has had like a couple of interceptions last year as a sophomore and I think he might have three or something this year now. But that's something that, uh, you know, if they are indeed, Mountain Union is playing somebody who's a little bit less experienced, doesn't have the big game experience of D'Angelo Fulford, then that's someplace where center might be able to get some things done. But I just uh, I agree that I think looking at the way Denison got machined this weekend, it makes it uh, makes me think that I'm not sure what center could do to avoid getting machined as well. Yeah, and I guess really the way I should have phrased that is not so much that center is going to present a huge challenge to Mountain Union, but that they really want. Uh, W&J yeah. this weekend, 17 nothing first quarter, which was kind of a big deal, and then really never looked back from there in a 54-13 win. That was one of the games we thought would be more like the Muhlenberg-Delval game, which was which came down to the final minute. I think the probably the two most compelling games besides perhaps Mary Harden-Baylor, Harden-Simmons in round one were, were in my mind, Delval-Muhlenberg in this game, and it uh, turned out to be not compelling at all even with center losing its quarterback. And, and I think that says a, a lot about center and reinforces some of the things we said in the last few podcasts of, this, of the year where center had a very strong pool C resume and wasn't getting a ton of traction in the top 25 because they didn't have a lot of high profile wins. Even their wins that were over playoff teams, uh, they, they beat Hanover and Maryville during the season and lost to Barry by three in overtime. So they had a really solid strength of schedule. They had wins against regionally ranked opponents, which gave them a very good um, playoff criteria to get in as an at-large in Pool C. We still didn't have games against great teams nationally that that made people, particularly voters, take notice. And I think what they did on Saturday, uh, almost 600 yards of total offense against W&J, uh, certainly got us to take notice a little bit. 
and in a different part of the bracket, they, they may have a chance to win in the second round. We talked uh, quite a bit about the John Carroll Randolph Macon game. Is there more that we need to say about the uh, Delval Muhlenberg game before we move on? You know, I don't know. The only thing that we didn't that we didn't touch on is that Delval took a 13-0 lead in the first quarter of that game, and Muhlenberg had to battle back and grind into that one, and then had some opportunities to take the lead in the fourth quarter before they won it with the pick six. So that was one. If if you were one of the folks that had a chance to watch it. You you would have had some rode the roller coaster a little bit, had some ups and downs, and uh, that that would have been a very enjoyable game to watch. And now I, I think this is um, you know there are better games in round two. Bethel North Central comes to mind, um, but Randolph Macon or Muhlenberg is going to go to the quarterfinals. It should be a good game. Both teams have a chance to win. It's at Allentown, so folks from from either side can can get to it. It's about a four hour trek though. From, from Richmond to Allentown, so it's not super short. My super short show. But at this point, Thanksgiving weekend, if you really want to see a game, you know, you can get in the car and do it. I think that should be a, a, a fun one, and that's going to be the pinnacle of those two teams' season because most likely the next week, whoever wins that one, that team is going out to Mountain Union to have its season ended. So don't want to assume because obviously we assumed that that Randolph-Macon didn't have much of a chance against John Carroll, and, uh, and, and they beat him, but... I think for if you're looking for a feel-good story in round two, this is it. Last thing on that before we go, Michael Natkowski, the Muhlenberg quarterback, 14 of 35 passing. Uh, one touchdown was picked off twice. The uh, the Nobile brothers up front for Delaware Valley certainly gave him a little less time to throw. We're moving on to the bottom left-hand bracket where we saw UW-Whitewater, St. Norbert, North Central, and Bethel advance. Bethel jumped out to a, a big early lead on Warburg and Cruz, and here's Jaron Rosti and Steve Johnson, the quarterback and head coach, to talk about that. I think it's big for us just, just being able to establish. I think our defense does a great job. They set the tone today on that first series and just being able to jump ahead to a big lead. That kind of bodes well for us because we're a downhill running team and, and we can kind of establish the line of scrimmage early and often, and we just keep running at dudes. And I think that Everyone does a great job, offense and defense, playing well with the lead. And uh, I think that if we can continue to do that, we're going to do good things. That's really true. Our defense playing around, and it, you know, they kind of cause you to to have to be patient. The other guys, and then when we get the ball on offense, you know, especially with Wartburg, they've just got an incredibly explosive offense with their quarterback and and uh, you know all those guys. But um, to have you know, we've got the ball a lot, and that, that's a good thing about the running game and stuff like that. And so, you know, points-wise, to, to dominate um, at the line of scrimmage but also get some points, that puts some more pressure on the... Rosty, 150 yards on 10 carries. Sam Gibbis, 107 uh, yards on 18 carries. The teams, uh, or the Bethel, two quarterbacks combined to go four for 15. We'll talk a little bit, uh, of course, more on Friday about how that looks going into the game against North Central but it's really a such a contrast that that's it's such a heavy uh you know balance on the running side for Bethel and then Warburg on the other side negative rushing yards Matt Sasha 23 of 41 passing but just 230 yards in his final collegiate game and it really just was this this entire contrast all day yeah and I think what makes Bethel interesting obviously is having the quarterback Jaron Rusty be able to be a a guy who can average fifteen yards per carry as he did on Saturday uh to break off long runs. We saw one of those in week eleven against St Thomas 
uh, and then of course uh, here against uh, against Warburg, three touchdown day, and then have the regular running backs, you know, also go over 100 yards and, and spread the ball out a little bit. So what's what's fascinating is Bethel midseason was I don't know if they were a little bit more than an afterthought. They were starting, oh, they're kind of they're looking kind of interesting, you know, and then and then. As we got closer to week 11, we're like, this is a team that could play its way into the playoffs, but they still have to beat St. Thomas, so let's not get ahead of ourselves, beat St. Thomas, win in the first round convincingly. And now you're starting to wonder, you know, is does, is North Central going to have its hands full on Saturday? North Central will be at home. Beth will be on the road, but it's eh, not, the, not the worst road trip in the world. And then, you know, potentially a, a, an epic matchup against uh, – Whitewater for for the winner, so I, I think Bethel is becoming quickly one of the more fascinating teams in the tournament. Yeah, and the guys to watch on the defensive side who we haven't even really talked about in this uh, portion of the conversation. Kyle Kilgore is a guy who's getting lots of raves up front for them. Cameron Monson had three sacks on Saturday. Kilgore had had a pair. Uh, they registered ten sacks of uh, Matt Sasha on Saturday, and that's and that's huge. We talked a little bit earlier about St. Norbert over Trine. Uh, St. Norbert made uh, Trine basically ineffective on offense. Fourth time this season that the St. Norbert defense, though, has uh, kept the opponent from uh, scoring an offensive touchdown. You know, whether that is sustainable in uh, this uh, upcoming round against UW-Whitewater is something we'll talk about on Friday. But that and the combination of, you know, playing a little ball control on offense, keeping the ball out of Lamar Carswell's hands certainly helped. But even then, when Lamar Carswell had the ball in his hands, he didn't always have the ball in his hands. Well, yeah, those those fumbles, really those two turnovers back-to-back by the same guy, huge plays in the game because even though um, St. Norbert was playing well defensively, they weren't they weren't exactly lighting it up offensively, and then they just put some distance between them and Trine. And, and when you're built to run the way Trine is, um, it's hard to get back in the game when you, when you get down by multiple scores. Bottom half of this bracket featured uh... – a game we already talked about in Bethel against Wartburg, and we skipped the Whitewater-Eureka game, but we'll come back to it in a second. Don't worry. North Central over Hanover, though. There's not a lot to mention about that game either, I guess, necessarily. Kind of a a quick one and out for Hanover, not unsurprisingly, and North Central made pretty quick work of them. Yeah, and and North Central's offense has really been playing well uh, for the past several weeks. You know, they, they were great in the Illinois Wesleyan game, and that's the the game that propelled them into the postseason. But you, you go now from playing CCIW teams every week, which is, you know, there was at least five, six teams deep this year of, of pretty good teams. And then you play Hanover out of the Heartland, which is not not traditionally one of the stronger conferences. So it's it's almost like for some of these really good teams, uh, you know, like Mountain Union, Whitewater, um, Bethel in, in perhaps, and then in this case, North Central, the team you play in the first round is almost like a step back from some of the teams you've played all season. And so for, for North central uh, you mentioned them making quick work. Uh, Brock Rutter only had to throw 23 passes, um, no turnovers. And then a bunch of guys getting carries for, for North central and averaging, you know, four five, six, ten 10 yards per carry for, for Ethan Greenfield. Um, but, you know, big day all around for North central. But the level of competition goes back to what they're used to really quickly by playing Bethel in round two. 52 nothing with the win 
for the Cardinals over the Panthers. The uh, top one in this bracket was uh, UW-Whitewater over Eureka by the score of 67-14. to One of the things we were always kind of curious about is uh, what the stat line would be for Lee Anthony Reasonover, and he finished his afternoon in the third quarter with 21 carries for 50 yards. Uh, people really raved about how Drew Barth uh, was in this game. Of course, he's the guy who is the nephew of the head coach, 25 of 33 passing for 238 yards and a couple of scores for him. And I guess a couple of scores is surprising when you look at North Central putting up a shutout, Mountain Union putting up a shutout, St. John's winning by 78 points, you know, 84 to 6. Um, 67-14 by comparison, of course, still a huge blowout. But uh, but Eureka put it up, um, you know, maybe a little bit more of a fight than, uh, than than some of the other teams. But I think Whitewater fully in control of this one from the start. Right. One of those touchdowns was not even in the fourth quarter. Whitewater just ran the ball, ran the ball, ran the ball. I mean, they did throw 15 passes and completed eight of them. But Ronnie Ponick, 12 carries for 202 yards and three scores. Alex Pete, he's the... the uh, uh, presumptive number one guy for the Warhawks, 10 carries for 116 yards and three scores. Ryan Wisniewski, uh, who's, you know, I believe more of a wide receiver, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong. Two carries for 83 yards. One of them was a 65-yarder. Both of them were touchdowns. Regardless, uh, lots of things worked for uh, Whitewater on offense. And, and similarly, like we talked about with North Central, this was a game in which, you know, going from having beaten everybody in the WIAC by about 20 points or more, then playing somebody out of the knack is a, is just kind of that quintessential first-round experience for a top seed. Yeah, I think the really big difference in games like that is, is the line play. You're just recruiting bigger kids to the WIAC. you are got a more experienced roster to sort through and, and let the cream rise to the top, so to speak, when it comes to uh, to line play. And that's where Whitewater's traditionally been excellent. Their offensive motto is pound the rock. They've had a great defense um, all season. And, and generally, you know, over the past 10 or 15 years, they're, they're strong up front in, in the front seven. They have a great All-American in, in Harry Henschler, um, but he's not the only good good defensive player on that uh, on that defensive line. So you get in games like that. And, uh, you know, there was a St. John's clip making the rounds, too. That was that would maybe illustrate this better than anything from the Whitewater game. But where you just see the, the linemen sort of obliterate one of the linemen from from Martin Luther and. Um, it just goes to show that the as much as we will spend time talking about quarterbacks and running backs and wide receivers that put up big numbers and defensive backs that have interceptions, um, it's still those guys up front that make the big difference, and it's what separates the wheat from the chaff, for for lack of a better word. I don't even know if I pronounced that. You might have to do a pronunciation one on one on me for that phrase. No, you got um, that. That's how that's how you separate the the really good teams in D three, and that's where the these round one matchups sometimes get out of hand because you don't see teams that that can match up with teams from from good conferences. And I think that's one of the reasons why Randolph Macon was able to to hang with John Carroll because that's one of the strengths of their team. For a little bit more about the UWW defense, we wrote a story about it earlier in the season. I'll throw a link to that story on the podcast page and you can read up on that. And to Stat Boy myself, I just checked. Yeah, Ryan Wisniewski is a wide receiver, so I was not crazy, at least not in that regard. Moving to the bottom right-hand bracket, I, I think uh, the interesting storylines here coming up in just a second, but another bracket in which all four home teams won. Brockport over Framingham State, RPI over Husson, Frostburg State over Western New England, and Johns Hopkins over MIT. Uh, Keith, quickly about this bracket, I think we had two games here. One where, uh, well, both of them where 
Brockport and Frostburg didn't seem to dominate as we expected them to. And uh, here we'll have uh, Delane Fitzgerald tell us a little bit about uh, how, why his team didn't maybe come out so intense at the beginning of their game against Western New England. We were lacking some in that area. And here's, guys, here, here's what happened to us this week. Uh, we weren't very good offensively in practice on Wednesday, and then the blizzard hits here on Thursday. So we're inside in the gymnasium, and it's hard to run and execute a practice in the gymnasium. But we were inside on Thursday, and we turned around, still had to be inside on Friday. So it, it, it affected our intensity. It affected our focus a little bit. But more than anything else, it affects your timing because you're not getting to do things full speed when you're in a college gymnasium. Keith, we've heard Delane Fitzgerald talk more than once this year now about uh, not coming out intense or coming out focused or ready to play or whatever you want to call it. That's just not going to cut it from here on forward in this playoff bracket. No, because their their matchups, as they should, are going to get tougher week to week. Johns Hopkins this week, potentially uh, Brockport the week after, or, or if RPI pulls the upset, you know, then you're looking at a, another pretty good matchup. And look, more than the the Brockport game, right, which was 24-0 at the half, and then Framingham State scored a bunch in the second half and, and maybe made it look closer than it ever was. This Frostburg one was actually a uh, Western New England scored 10 points in, in the first quarter. Uh, one was a, uh, a long drive for a field goal, nine plays, and the other one was a uh, turnover and just a two-play drive, and they punched it in for a touchdown. But I, I actually think that's kind of a, va- a valid – I don't want to say excuse because explanation. It's a valid explanation that you can't really go hard in the gym. The weather was a little funky uh, in the mid-Atlantic this past week uh, where it snowed and sort of hail ice overnight. And then, you know, you can't just – even if you did go out on the practice field, all you're doing is is sliding around and risking getting somebody hurt. Um, And I don't know if that's maybe a little bit of like, hey, when we we move to D2 – Maybe we'll get a practice bubble. We'll get some money poured into this program. But D3, it's not something that you usually invest in. Um, Wherever you can find a space is where you have space for practice. So uh, Frostburg figured out a way to get it done. And and I don't know if I'd be super concerned with them heading into the Hopkins game. I'd be more concerned with looking at how good Hopkins was and really has been um, in the in the latter half of the season, they gave up a bunch of points to Randolph Macon and the Susquehanna in the first two games. But the defense has improved all season long, and they always got an offense led by a good quarterback, good running back, and they spread you out and and uh, move the ball down the field. So they're going to get a pretty good test this week. Frostburg is, and if they're not ready from jump, it's going to be a long day. And on the opposite side, Johns Hopkins' level of uh, opponent and competition is going to go way up this upcoming Saturday. They beat MIT in the first round by the score of 49 to nothing. It was 42 zip at the break. David tomorrow, 21 of 27 passing for three scores, all in the first half. Stuart Walters, this guy has been running back at, uh, at Johns Hopkins since like 2009, as far as I can tell. Uh, seven carries for 62 yards and a touchdown. Uh, and then uh, the Hopkins defense held MIT to 10 of 28 passing for 100 yards. And, you know, basically about what we talked about on Friday, like it could be in the first round for MIT. Yeah, I mean, again, big jump from the same way we just talked about some of these teams from really consistently good conferences taking a step back with their level of first round competition. It's a big jump up for MIT to play Johns Hopkins, even though the schools have similar academic profiles. Hopkins is a long-time dominant program in its conference has been recruiting into that for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, same head coaching staff, same head coach, consistent coaching staff. Um, And I think 
they have an identity. They have a thing that they do offensively, and uh, they're really good at it. So I think they make for a fun matchup for Frostburg in round two and just a little bit too much for, for MIT in round one. Up at the top half of this quadrant, we briefly mentioned uh, Brockport beating Framingham State by the score of 40-27. to 27. And Framing did, Framingham did score one of those touchdowns with 45 seconds left in the game to cut into that lead just a little bit. But uh, it was interesting because uh, listen to Jason Mangone's in, uh, post-game news conference. Part of it is about how young some of their guys are on defense. The first thing that we expect teams to sort of throw the ball early because of these guys, right? I mean, at some point, you can't hold the ball too long. Um, and so I think we're kind of accustomed to having teams get the ball out of their hands fast, whether it be on the outside, flats, or underneath drag routes. And then I think the score, you know, definitely didn't get out of hand by no means, but it got enough where, okay, three, four, five, seven-yard drags are not going to add up enough to, to come back fast enough. So they start throwing the ball downfield. And, I, you know, I want to give credit to our DBs. You know, I think we had uh, Vern, Vern Smith play today. Freshman hasn't played that much all year. Um, you know, we had a few little minor injuries where guys couldn't go back in. Um, you know, Hernandez was in there, obviously, a lot. You know, we had, we had three freshmen um, in the backfield in our secondary almost the whole second half when you had Marshall into it. Even though he's played a few games, he's still a freshman. So when you look at it, you know, we got freshman tailbacks, we got freshman fullback, freshman tight end, two freshman safeties at one point, freshman corner. I was like, man, you know, we've we're, we're got a lot of young guys out there. But they're talented enough where they stepped in and, and played well. You know, we spent a lot of time this season talking about Brockport's defense, and um, you maybe from afar, you don't get a chance to watch any of that game. You look at that number, you see 40 to 27, and you think they didn't play all that well. But I don't know that I'd be all that concerned with with Brockport going forward. They were pretty much in control of this one I, I, every time we looked at most of the way. And, you know, maybe maybe Frank Rossi's a better guy to ask, but uh, I wouldn't worry too much about, about Brockport. No, we knew at jump that this was not going to be like the 66 nothing game against Plymouth State last year in the first round out of the MASCAC because uh, Framingham State is a is a program that plays quality non-conference games and has been to the playoffs before, whereas uh, Plymouth State was kind of completely in over its head last year as a uh, playoff participant. The other game we haven't talked about yet in this bracket is uh, RPI defeating Husson 38-14. to This is a game that seemed kind of close early and as often happens... You know, the uh, the quality program kind of wins out over time. Uh, 24-7 RPI outscored Husson in the second half to uh, put that game away. Now, I think for those of us from, you know, who are watching from afar, you looked at that 34-10 loss to Union in the Dutchman Shoes game, and you just figure, you know, what kind of RPI are we going to get in, in round one? It looks like we got the version that was, you know, completely refocused, and uh, and ready to go from jump, and and was just a better team than Husson. But certainly, I don't fault anybody who thought Husson might give RPI a game. You know, just based on how bad they looked in Week 11. So, you know, you could chalk it up to weird things happen in rivalry games if you want to. But RPI definitely had to get refocused, and and I think um, maybe we'll be coming into to the Brockport game pretty confident when you look at the Brockport score and you look at how well RPI played on Saturday. Of course, it's awards season also. We have our D3Football.com, all region awards are being nominated right now. If you are a sports information director, you should have gotten an email from us last week with a reminder about this. Now, the 
Uh, deadline is not until next Sunday, the 25th. But that comes at the end of a long weekend. So I just want to urge you to get your nominations in now. There is no point in waiting. So please do that. If you have any questions, contact me. If you're an SID, you know how to get in touch. Uh, also, of course, award season includes the Gallardi Trophy, the uh, trophy which goes to the uh, best all-around student athlete in NCAA Division III football, put together by the J Club and St. John's University. The uh, There will be more than 10 semifinalists. We will have the uh, full list, which is uh, expected to come out on Tuesday, sometime around noon or so Eastern time. But uh, I just wanted to throw that little teaser out there that uh, we had uh, they had more than 30 nominations this year, which is a little bit more than last year, and that's great. Uh, and in order to... Uh, they had some, I guess, some really interesting decisions about how to break down the uh, or choose between some of the final people on their list. So rather than try to make a cut down to 10, they are going to give us a few more than 10 semifinalists this year. So, Keith, when uh, you and I get those ballots this week, it will be interesting. Yeah, well, I think it is always interesting because what's different from the other divisions is that it's a it's incumbent upon the schools to nominate uh, their best player or their player most likely to win or the player they feel is most qualified for the award and sometimes that's not the person that voters would necessarily pick so in the case of a lot of the great quarterbacks around the country for instance a lot of them are juniors and so we don't know if the school is going to go with its junior quarterback uh, junior quarterbacks have won the award before or they are going to nominate a senior and, uh, and try to get somebody who they feel has been in the program for four years and deserves this honor to at least, um, you know, big be a semifinalist. Um, I, I don't know if we have so any too many cut and dried candidates, especially when you look at how some of the big number guys played in their playoff games on Saturday. Yeah. Uh, both, both of those both of those running backs who were definitely shoe ins for consideration and in uh, Lamar Carswell and Lee Anthony Reasonover. Uh, got shut down on Saturday as their teams lost. And, uh, and, and you know, maybe it's somebody like uh, Lewis Berry, with five defensive touchdowns, cornerback for Mountain Union, that, that ends up getting a lot of consideration. So we'll just have to see when the uh, when, when the field comes out. But it should be a really interesting one um, because it's got a little bit of a wider range than, uh, than the Heisman Trophy does, where it's just like best quarterback, best running back, occasionally a good wide receiver. Th- this will encompass a lot more. I can assume that there will still be a fan voting component this year. I haven't been told that there isn't. We're prepared to host it as always, so uh, keep an eye out for that. Uh, the fans get uh, a collective cumulative one ballot, so we uh, we welcome that and we're glad to host that again, assuming that comes to us. I can't tell you for sure about that. I can tell you for sure that uh, D3Football.com will be hosting the reveal show for the finalists. So we're going to take these uh, number of semifinalists and whittle them down to four finalists as as always, that's uh, that's been the the standard here for the past several years. But because there's not going to be a ceremony at the Stag Bowl site with the four finalists all together, uh, we're still going to do a, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have a reveal show, which will air on uh, the afternoon of Thursday, December sixth. That's a little further downfield. Uh, Frank Rossi and I will be. Uh, uh, well, Frank will be mostly putting that together, and I will be uh, sitting here smiling and talking about the uh, four finalists. So I'm appreciative, of course, uh, for Frank doing the production work and and that sort of thing. We still get to we still get to host a show. It's just not going to be 
at the Stag Bowl, and we're not going to uh, release the winner on this show, but maybe we'll also be involved in the release of the winner of the Gilardi Trophy as well. Anyway, I can tell you for sure that we'll be releasing who the finalists are, and uh, you can find that out on d3football.com coming up in about a week and a half or about three podcasts away, if that's the way that you keep track of time, because I know it's how I keep track of time. Keith, anything else to say before we go? Go, go, go! No, I think I'm just looking forward to, to breaking down week two's matchups in uh, in the Friday podcast because I think we have a, a handful of uh, really good ones and, and a couple pretty good ones. So it should be fun. Are we going to get together on Thanksgiving night and do this? Is that what we're doing? Oh, my God. Yeah, we got to plan better. <laughs> who, who, would, who knew when we decided to do Friday podcasts that this was where the rubber was going to meet the road? And this was D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 225, season 12, episode 26, released on November 19th of 2018. Thanks for listening and keep an eye on the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like this podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or, you know, Joe Schmo's podcast, wherever you get your podcast, that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Lots of audio uh, was uh, helpfully put out there by schools this week. Thanks to the folks at Brockport. Thanks to the folks at uh, Frostburg, at Whitworth, at Barry, at uh, Mary Harden Baylor, and at Bethel. Also, thanks to uh, Gordon Mann and the folks at uh, Delaware Valley, as well as the folks at John Carroll. We got a lot of uh, good audio into this, and we definitely appreciate it. Also, you can uh, support us by pronouncing Muhlenberg correctly. So thanks to our, uh, our guests and all of that for their time on this edition of our show, and thanks, of course, to the creator of Around the Nation on D3 Football and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter using the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football on Twitter, and Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. Did you know? Join the conversation by registering a post at D3Boards.com. Also, you can follow D3Football.com on Facebook. So, Keith, you're telling me you are not going to do the podcast while driving on the New Jersey Turnpike. Let alone fact, I don't even take the New Jersey Turnpike. Just two ninety five. It's free. I love two ninety five, except it's usually not paved as well as uh, as the New Jersey Turnpike. I do love the Delaware Memorial Bridge. I really hated that drive. You know, my in laws uh, lived in Philadelphia. We lived on the East Coast, and I would always be driving through that traffic the day before Thanksgiving as well. You know, like the traffic would be crazy. And there's that spot right north of the Delaware-Pennsylvania border, kind of as you go through Chester of Pennsylvania, where the road narrows and the, you know, it wasn't blacktop. The lines were poorly lit. And it was just, I felt like I was running the gauntlet for about five miles through there until we got past, well, past the exit for Widener. And the road got a little wider and I was not, uh, I wasn't going to get sideswiped by a semi anymore. That is a very deep memory, man. There's a lot of detail in that one. I made so many of those trips, and I hated all of them. It was even worse when it rained. I hate driving in the in the rain at night, and if it's the rain night and the lines are poorly poorly marked, man, I'm screwed. It's white knuckle stuff all the way. <laughs> I've driven with you before, man. I, I know you like to white knuckle. Safe travels to everybody who's traveling for Thanksgiving, and the safe travels to everybody who's traveling for a second round game. Thank you so much, everybody.